0: Had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to
1: fall just for what I did well. And there's
0: some stories I this is tell the final word cricket, cricket podcast, Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins, we're deep into Western Victoria on the Visit Victoria Roadshow. We found ourselves in the town of Harrow, and this is important cricket country out here. There's a man who's become a legend. in in the modern sense, Unaraman, who is more broadly known as Johnny Muller, that's the name that's attached to the museum, the Johnny Muller Interpretive Centre out here. And we're sitting with Josie Sangster, who keeps this place ticking over day by day. Hello, Josie, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Last year, the Scott Boland three days, which is just a magical moment in oh, in, in sporting history, I think, I of, of this nation. probably get chills up the spine thinking about it for the rest of my life, having been there, and we were all there, I'm sure.
1: I can have on replay the, the montage of the six for seven wickets, in you life.
2: <laughs> well, believe me, we, <laughs> just we, <like> that. <laughs> I, I, I'll happily watch and listen back to that forever. Oh, but yeah. The medal itself, obviously, being issued to him, but I go, kind of go back to Boxing Day as well. The great, Martin Flanagan um, wrote of the 1993 grand final, it was the great unofficial reconciliation ceremony of our time. It was the International Year of the Indigenous Person. It was an extraordinary sort of event. i watched it back um, when making another program. But yeah. this felt like the next part of that, using the MCG again and the, the, the welcome to country and the camera on Scott Boland during the Welcome to Country, the response of the great Southern stand when they read out his name. Um, again. I, yeah, I do too, just talking mm. about it, right? And then to do what he did on the field, the six for seven, mm. speaks for itself as cricket people. Then being And you to know, be the first Australian to win that medal. The first Australian to win that medal. Can you give us a, a sense of how you felt throughout the course of, of those three days and witnessing something that you know, none of us will forget?
1: Can I go back before the three days? Please, please, Just a couple of days. Would
2: love you to. Yeah. So
1: my, my son rings and says, Mum, Scotty's in the squad. And my phone was going off. You know, there were people from 2018. Scotty's in mm. the squad. And I thought, yeah, I did see him carrying the drinks in Adelaide. I was suspicious. Christmas Day, Mum, I've got a present for you. I can't, I can't do this now. I'm too busy putting potatoes on. No, no, no. I think you'll like this one. Okay, what is it? Scotty Boland's got a baggy green. I was like, that is just the best. Completely lost the plot, burnt the potatoes, did all this, <laughs> you know, like, just right, right? So it's like, oh, that is the coolest thing. That Christmas Day is now complete for me. I actually had the Muller medal with me on Christmas Day because I had to take it to the G the next day, and I thought it'll just be my luck that I get broken into on Christmas day and the Marla medal gets stolen. So it came to Christmas lunch with me and to (laughs) to my neighbours in my hand, just like, just to sit there and say nothing. So um, next morning up at four o'clock to to get the the medal to the G, that was crazy. Just walking over the bridge with with the Marla medal in my bag going, I've got this in my handbag. And then we had a great day. Saw Scotty's first week and was just like, yeah, this is cool. I had a lovely day. And then um, passed over to my colleague from Cricket Australia. I said, okay, here's the Mala medal. Give me the one for next year to take back to the centre. Good, thank you very much. Just make sure Scotty Bowen gets this, won't you? Thank you. Yeah, smarty pants. And it <laughs> off with it. <laughs> the other medal in my bag back to the hotel room. And two days later, I am sitting here and I thought, oh, I must get the television going in the other room. Get it, you know, get the linked up because it's one of those smart things and I'm not that smart. And I must get that going up because um, I want to see who gets the Muller medal. And that was the on the 28th. Ducked down the street to get something, heard two wickets in the 200 metres that I quickly drove to get a tomato. Came back, another one went, I was like, oh, I don't think I've got time to get the thing. Anyway, I've found this young fellow going past and thought, he will know how to get the smart TV. He looks smart, (laughs) I'll grab him by the collar. And he's like, okay, crazy lady. I just said, I don't care, just get in here and get this television working. And he was like, okay. Well, even he, he wasn't smart enough to get it working. And we watched it on his telephone. And, <laughs> and, and I was crying and he's still looking at me, crazy lady. And my family ring and other people, friends of the Discovery Center ring, the phone was going off. And it was a complete and utter waste of a day after that because we were all just going, that was probably one of the most incredible things I've ever seen in cricket. There's been some great moments in cricket undeniably, but that, that will stick with me. When, when Scott and Nick Boland came here in 2018 as part of the preparation, a few of the players that were destined to go to the UK came just to connect with the story, connect with the country that Tunariman was from went out to the waterhole where he spent the latter part of his life. It is a very spiritual place and a time of connection with the story, you know, in a... It was a penny drop sort of moment. Like, this is where he lived, this is where he played, and the country from where they all came. Scott talks about his time in Harrow and and the visit to Eden home back in 2018 as the point
0: Mm. that he
1: connected more so with his own Aboriginality and, and the story. And if you look at his figures since then, they go up exponentially. <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: That has actually been analysed and written about by Dan Bredick.
2: The fact that Scotty is, I mean he's in the Test Squad for the week after Next again, it feels like there's a chance he'll play Test Cricket again this summer. How, how, yeah. how special would that be for you if you go to the MCG on Boxing Day and he's in the 11 lining up for the Welcome to Country again?
1: It'd be pretty special. And, and the MCG's his turf. That's his home ground. You know, that's what he knows. <laughs>
0: Can you tell us about Unaraman, the the person, the individual, because it, it's very easy for legends to get turned into something other than the person that they were. Uh, who was he? What was his relationship to this part of the country around here?
1: Well, Unaraman, um, also known as Johnny Mala, was a proud Wadjibolik, Bajali man. He came from this district. Nobody exactly knows where he was born, but he, he learnt the game of cricket while he was working at the nearby station Malla, which is where he got his name from, and right. Pine Hills. So he learnt the game from the tutor that was employed at the station, uh, Mr William Burville, who just included him in on the game to, you know, to field the ball. And then it soon became apparent that his um, innate skills um, applied to the game of cricket made him an outstanding cricketer.
0: But he's also somebody who came back to live here at the back end of his life as well, isn't that right?
1: Absolutely. He he was part of the first um, team to leave the district and go to Melbourne to play on Boxing Day in 1866. That was the only fixture, that was the only day in the fixture at the time that was available. So Tom Wills booked that and they played there. So he played in that and the season thereafter. And then it was the following year that they actually went to the UK, which took all of a year by the time they travelled there and played there for six months and came back. He returned to Harrow, returned to Pine Hills and Marla Station where he worked as a shearer and a rabbiter, and uh, was a pretty handy cricketer still by then, especially after all that uh, he'd played in England. He played for the Harrow Cricket Club for all those years and played in the Murray Challenge Cup, which was the local comp at the time. Actually, in the meantime, he did play for Victoria in 1879 for the Lord Harris's team at the MCG. But he returned to Harrow, played cricket here, and he died in 1891.
2: I'm kind of interested in this story of being a shearer by day working on the station and kind of learning cricket by night effectively. I mean it's quite a leap between that learning the game and going on to be as successful as he was both as a batter and a bowler.
1: Yes he was the star all-rounder of the of the team. Part of station life was on a Sunday scratch out a pitch in the front paddock and have a game of cricket for whoever was around. And, you know, there was a large workforce on the stations then. So there was enough for a couple of teams. And then those teams started playing, you know, the neighbouring stations, whether it be Lake Wallace or Bring Albert or, you know, Mount Talbot Station.
0: There's this contrast, right, this clash in this story, because the 1860s, you've still got so much frontier violence going on around... Victoria, there's still wholesale dispossession of Indigenous people, and at the same time you've got this team going to Melbourne to play, ending up in England to play, although they did have to sneak out of the state in order to to do that. It's hard to reconcile the contradictions between those two aspects of how white Australia was interacting with Indigenous Australia at the time.
1: That is what confronts a lot of the visitors that come here. How did this happen at a time of early colonisation? On the one hand, there were massacres and poisonings and displacement and you know taking people off their country and putting them on missions. By the same token, they're now absolutely equal on on the cricket field. And that's what I think is quite extraordinary about this story. It was once they're on the cricket field and they can play the cricket, they were equal. They were applauded. They were heroes. It's something that a lot of people just can't get their head around, is how did this happen? And. It is a good story in so many ways, and and tragic in another.
2: That is fascinating what you're describing there. Like. How were the players interpreted, I suppose, off the pitch? Are they being applauded on the, on the field of play? They've been sort of found to play in these high-profile games, be it at the MCG, going overseas to England and all the rest of it. But in their everyday lives as non-cricketers, as members of the general population, were they seen as kind of celebrities, so to speak, because they were playing in big cricket? Or were they immediately cast aside once their, their job was done, as it were, as, as players?
1: That definitely happened. On the cricket oval, they they let the cricket do the talking. The cricket did do the talking. They were heralded as heroes. However, there is an element, a very strong element, of them being characters in a vaudeville sideshow, if you like. They they displayed their tribal skills. Mm. A lot of the descendants are, are proud of that. They actually quite like the fact that their ancestors took their culture to the world. You know, they were made to dress up in ridiculous costumes too to do these tribal displays, but it was their, their ability and their innate ability that enabled them to be fantastic cricketers and that was absolutely celebrated and applauded.
0: There's something of that too in the nomenclature, in the names that these players are given, which on the whole sounds like pretty condescending sideshow sort of names but they still get used often to this day as the names to identify the players rather than mm. their own tribal names, which are identifiable in most cases. We, you know, we know what the real names of most of these players were. How do you reconcile that in, in the modern era in terms of... There's something about the use of most of those names that feels really uncomfortable to me as a, as a historian.
1: Oh, absolutely. There's, well, Jim Crow is one of them, and it was used in the United States. I think the performer, painted face character was called Jim Crow. So then that name was used quite often for somebody who was black. That is considered an insulting name today in the US and dare say should be here. So that was used around a bit. You'll see a lot of Jim Crow Creeks, Jim Crow Mountain, Jim Crow Road, and not necessarily just around here. Tarpot is a hideous name. Hmm. Um, Usually they were were given these easier names because they couldn't pronounce their real name like Unaraman or Maringaraman or Bulkanar. he was Bullocky, But all efforts are made to use their traditional name.
0: So you've got this group of young men, they're mostly from this area, they're rural, this has been their world. Is there a, a way to get a sense of what it was like for them ending up on a ship in 1868 And then winding up in England it's an extraordinary shift in terms of the experience they had whether there's a way of trying to understand that
1: certainly you know we're not exactly a coastal district Mm. the vessel on water that they would have been used to was a canoe made from the bark of a tree a local tree that said by the time they went to England they had been on the open seas before in the first trip that they went to New South Wales disastrous trip to New South Wales with Tom Wills, where they tangled with uh, William Gurnett from Sydney. They went on the boat there. Mm -hmm. So by the time they went to England, they had sailed on the open seas before and probably had a pretty good idea of how wobbly that water can get. (laughs) So I credit them with at least having some sense of what they were in for. You know, they weren't totally blindsided by, just get on this boat, it won't take long and it might get a little bit rocky. You know, they would have experienced that, had made that decision.
2: How is the 1868 Tour of England viewed through historical lens from your perspective? Obviously, the, the Muller story that we were referring to before with bat and ball, leading the runs, leading the wickets, all the rest of it, mm. having such a prolific time of it as a cricketer. But more broadly, is it seen now, um, 155 or so years on, as being something to be celebrated or, or something to be sort of critically analysed for, for what it was?
1: Both. Celebrated for the courage and resilience that they displayed and how extraordinary it would have been for them to leave their country, to leave their family, to leave their food source, to leave the medicine that they were used to, you know, to even just leave anything known to them and to go to a foreign country. And I'm talking just out of their region, let alone going to England. That deserves every celebration and we commemorate it as well. The latest attention at the 150th anniversary from Cricket Australia was absolutely instrumental in bringing the story to the fore in the last five years. That was a great opportunity to say there is a 150th anniversary of this incredible story in Australian history. Does anybody know about it? No. Oh fancy that! What an amazing story! And they have been instrumental in in bringing it up, in, you know, with the twenty eighteen tour that they put together, or squad, I should say, of Aboriginal men and women cricketers to commemorate and retrace the steps of the of the tour.
0: And so, what's the influence of an Ironman today? Because it's still here. Johnny Muller's name is on the centre. There's the Johnny Muller oval in Harrow. Uh, there's a Johnny Muller cup that is played down here, a tournament. And then it goes more broadly with the Muller medal for the best player at the Boxing Day test and so on. But locally, the influence of this one man, it seems to be increasing with time.
1: Yeah, well, the, the locals are just like, yeah, told you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we've known it's been a good yarn for a while. <laughs> you blokes are all just catching on now. You know, it's, it's innate, like it's just, he's buried in the in the cemetery up on the hill. That's looked after and cared for. It's a second nature to the people of the district, this story. So it was like, it's, it was a realisation that one had to have to, to tell it to the broader population. And you know, maybe they'll enjoy it. Well, they they sure do. People can't believe the story when they come here. And the other thing that gets, um, that I get told is, why don't we know about this? Why don't we know more about this story? No. This, we should have been taught this in schools. I don't know why you, I can't answer that question, but I'm here to change that.
2: Yeah, you know, I, f- I feel like it's the sort of thing that will be.
0: It's an extraordinary place you've got here. We came, We didn't really know what to expect. We, you know, it could have been a room or two of, uh, of Curios. It's, it's an entire complex, full of stories and full of artifacts that you've managed to pull together. and. You're doing a a wonderful job teaching people about the history of our game. Josie Sangster, thanks for joining The Final Word.
1: It has been my pleasure, thank you.